Well, we're looking at the uh, story of Haggai in, in chapter 2 of the book of his name. Uh, it, it's a wonderful story. The, the prophet Haggai had a, had a wonderful time as a prophet. He wasn't one of those who was stoned and, and abused. He was one of the ones who was listened to. And this little passage that we read ends with a, with a prediction of what the people of faith would become in due course, that even though they were at a difficult time uh, and quite small, that there was going to be a wonderful time ahead. And uh, let me just remind you of those words here from uh, verse 6 of chapter 2 onwards. It says this, This is what the Lord Almighty says, In a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and the desire of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. And he continues in that vein. And what he's describing is in picturesque terms the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the establishment of the church and the expansion of the faith of God throughout the world. It truly did shake the world. And even the Roman Empire changed dramatically as Christianity spread throughout the known world of that time. Hosea, as a prophet, was speaking to their situation right as it was then, but he was also pointing ahead to what in the generations to come would be the seeds of faith in this day and in this generation. And that was the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the establishment of the church. And so we approach this from the context of the New Testament. We approach this from the knowledge that we see the Old Testament through the eyes of the New Testament. But also we see here, and this happens a lot in the Old Testament, uh, in the New Testament, particularly in the epistles, you get a lot of principles and theological argument. Here you get pictures of people's lives. And we see, uh, as we look and read between the lines even of what Haggai says, we can get into the world what that once was. And yet, the remarkable thing is, it seems very similar to the way we think and behave today. I was reading a novel recently, and I was struck by the description of one of the characters uh, in the novel. It, it described the character as this, it could easily be ours before she moved from her slump. Now, I want you to try and imagine that. Now, it's easy. Just think of Manchester United supporters, okay? And you've been in this situation, I'm sure. You're at the kitchen table, and there's something big in your life, and it just consumes you at that moment. And you sit in the kitchen table with your elbows on the table and your head in your hands, and moments and minutes and long period of time passes in that position. That's every Manchester United supporter at the minute. And I really grieve for them, but maybe not. But we've all been there, haven't we? And, and not just as something as trivial as football. There have been times and moments in our life when we have been in a slump. In a slump. Hands on head, elbows on the table. Lost in our own wee world. Well, I can't say if the individuals in Haggai's time was like that, but as a nation they were like that. 
as the people of God, that's where they were. But let me go back in the story a bit. Some uh, time previously, 18 years previously, the emperor of Babylon had released them. Remarkably, influenced by the Spirit of God, he says to the people of Israel, you can go back to your home city, to Jerusalem, and I'm going to allow you to rebuild your temple, and I'm going to give you some money, and I'm going to give you some goods to be able to do that. And he sent them off. That was 18 years previously. And, but 18 years passed, and they hadn't started to build the temple. And in chapter 1, Haggai comes as a prophet from the Word of God, and he, and he tells them, look, you're going to have to get on with this. Now, the problem was they were frightened of their neighbors. Uh, they, they were being threatened uh, that if they tried to rebuild the, the temple again, that the neighbors would come down hard on them. So they were frightened. But Haggai spoke to him and said, you've got to start doing what God has called you to do. And then he said something to them. He says, I know you have built your own houses. Not only that, you have built your own houses and you've put wooden panels in your houses. They're lovely. Oak paneling in your houses. Do you know something that scares me? God knows the color of my wallpaper. I don't think he's all that fussed about that, but what else does he know about me? What else does he know about me? And the people of God suddenly realize God's been watching. God's been watching. Somebody, we live in an apartment and we have an underground car park and we park our bicycles there as well. And somebody took a shortcut. Instead of going round the loop and out the exit, they cut through empty parking spaces and over my wife's bicycle uh, before exiting and they forgot to leave a note. Uh, so uh, I, I put some, we have a wee uh, Facebook group and I put a wee note on it and said, words that effect, you forgot to leave a note just to let you know the new wheel cost £49. Uh, but I, and then I added a wee bit to it and said, you know, do you not think in this secular world it's very easy to keep driving on? And, 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 and just, if you get away with it, you get away with it. And uh, I put that on Facebook, and I had about half a dozen atheists responded within half an hour. They said, it's got nothing to do with that and whatever. And then I responded by saying, you know, I could do what that person did, except I live with the belief that someone's watching me. And these people realize that God's watching them. So, reinvigorated, they set about to rebuild. And that's how chapter 1 ends. They're, they're at work, they're rebuilding, they're going to build this temple. But then chapter 2 lets us know that they've become discouraged again. Now, what do you think the gap is between chapter 1 and chapter 2? How, how long between the two sermons like Haggai preaches? Is it three years, maybe? No, it's not. Two years? One year? Three months? Do you know how long it was? Three and a half weeks. Three and a half weeks. You see, chapter 1 begins with the date, and chapter 2 begins with the date. So we know, those who know the ancient way of keeping calendar, know that that's all the time it was. Three and a half weeks is all it took for them 
to be discouraged and want to give up. Oh no, we can identify so easily with this, can't we? Let our good intentions quickly fly. And the wonderful thing is that in Haggai, he explains to us why it is that happened. I wouldn't want to call it psychology, but, but as we look at it from our perspective, it certainly feels like that. And he identifies uh, four things that have been happening in their minds and in their hearts that has caused them to be discouraged. And the first is comparison. Chapter 2, verse 3 says this, Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? Oh, they'd heard all the stories of the great temple in Jerusalem and how large it was, uh, and the gold and the silver and the embroidery uh, uh, and all the activity that went on in that place. There was a holy of holies, and then there was a temple courts, and there was the altar, and these were all wonderful and and, um, amazing things. They had heard all that stories, and then they looked at what they had managed to do in three and a half weeks, and it was miserable. And they said to themselves, at this rate of going, we're never going to get this job done. The three and a half weeks was only long enough for them to realize how big a job they had to do. They started off with great enthusiasm, but the three and a half weeks of work and the little work they'd managed to do showed to them this was going to be a hard job. And that was the first thing. They compared with what once was to the point they were at, and it seemed such a big gap. The second thing that discouraged them was nostalgia. There were some people who had been children in Jerusalem, taken to Babylon, and now had come back. And they were there to speak of the good old days. And as these workers listen to the stories of the good old days and the nostalgia, and, and you know, the good old days are, are sometimes, they're, they're sometimes gilded a bit, you know. Uh, I listened to my mother, uh, my mother talking about World War II, and it was great. All the Americans come over. She was a teenager going into early 20s. And all these American GIs had come over and were in Northern Ireland getting ready for D-Day. He says, the dances were wonderful. I had a great war. Uh, And, you know, that's what nostalgia can do. It can take some of the highlights and say, this is wonderful. And conveniently forget, well, in my mother's case, there was a war going on. Nostalgia can be a tremendous discouragement if it's sort of pressed down upon the younger generation. And then, thirdly, there was opposition. Now, we're not told this in Haggai, but there's another prophet around at the same time called Ezra. And in chapter 5 of his book, verses 3 and 4, he says this, At that time, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, 
and Shethar Borzani and their associates went to them and asked, who authorized you to rebuild this temple and to finish it? Well, actually, they had a very good answer. The emperor had. But that's not where the threat really lies. It goes on in verse 4 to say this. And they also asked, who are the names of those who are constructing this building? Give us your names. And all of a sudden, these people who were building blocks and building bricks and putting them on top of each other realized that they were in the front line of something. People wanted to know their names. They were being singled out. It was a form of pressure and persecution that was being put upon them. It was subtle, but it was frightening. And the fourth thing was unrealistic expectations. You see, when they were in Babylon, there was a prophet called Ezekiel, and he told them about what the future was going to be like. And, uh, uh, and this was about 30 years into their stay in, in Babylon. And in uh, chapter uh, 40 through to 48 of Ezekiel, he gives us great vision of the future of the people of God. I'll give you a little sample of it in, in, in chapter 43, verses 4 and 5. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So they had those words echoing in their memory. And then they looked at the pile of bricks, and it was miserable. And they were ready for giving up. What was the answer to Ezekiel's vision? It certainly wasn't that pile of bricks that they had managed to make. Well, there was another prophet called Zechariah who lived at the same time as Haggai. And he gave the answer to that question about Ezekiel's vision. In Zechariah 4 verse 10, he says this, Who dares despise the day of small things? Who dares despise the day of small things? In other words, how dare you think that that little pile of bricks isn't significant? It is. Why is it? Because God begins His work usually in a small way. Adam and Eve. We're now at 7.8 billion, but it began Adam and Eve. Abraham, one person, becomes a chosen people of God. The Exodus begins with Joseph and completed with Moses. Salvation begins with a baby in a manger. The church begins with only 12 disciples. What people need to realize both then and now is that God starts things in small ways. And if you listen to Jesus preaching and telling parables, he keeps going back to parables about seeds. The Word of God is a seed. Uh, or it's a little pearl. Something small that grows and is valuable. You see, none of what they were set and called to do was going to happen overnight. They wanted it fixed, and they wanted it right now. And often in life, as we face 
life's problems. We want things resolved here and now, instantly, cheaply, painlessly, effortlessly. But lots of things don't get sorted that way. Less than a month after they had started, they were deflated. And so God sends Hosea. So now, Haggai, because he doesn't want the people of God to give up. He wants them to build his temple, his church of their day. He wants them to start small and not give up. So that's why Haggai comes. And he says things to encourage them. And we'll go on to the positive now. And the overwhelming thing that God says to the people is be strong. He says it three times in verse 4. But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josodak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you. Be strong, be strong, be strong. Whatever level you're at, whether you're the governor or the high priest or just the people, be strong. And when God speaks, people listen. Be strong. Is this a suggestion? Is this an idea? Is this a pat on the head? Is this God wiping their favored brow? No, God is saying, sit down, be quiet, I'm going to tell you something, and that something is, be strong. Take a resolve to be strong. Don't let these waves overwhelm you, whether it's nostalgia or comparison or great expectations or outside pressure and persecution. Don't let any of those things undermine your strength. It's not an optional extra. It's what God expected of them, to be strong. In my prayer earlier, I suggested there's different ways to be strong. Our bodies can be weak, but we can be strong within. Our minds can be going through a very fragile state, but we can be strong in faith. We can lean heavily on God, and be strong. Margaret Thatcher said to George Bush as the Iraq war was starting and he was having doubts, he said, George, this, uh, she said, this is no time to go wobbly. And sometimes in life, when your head is in your hands and your elbows are on the table, sometimes that's not the time to go wobbly. It's the time to be strong. He not only says that, be strong. He says also in verse 4, and work. Verse 4, and work, for I am with you. God tells them to do something. You know, one of the hardest things I think is, uh, if you're going through an illness, that you're, you're locked in the house in the four walls, and you, and you can't get to do anything. I, I think that's a difficult place to be. And sometimes, you know, when we're low of spirit 
and we feel fragile, sometimes what we need to do is get out and do something. You know, sometimes after the, the, uh, the work of a, a Sunday, I as a minister would feel pretty low of spirit on a Monday. Just drained. But I found one of the best things was go out and do a bit of visiting. And before you knew it, you weren't thinking about yourself anymore. Get out there and work. That's what God says. If we sit around and tell each other how little we have achieved and how our blisters hurt and how our back hurts, we're just going to become more discouraged. It's people doing nothing who are the most easily discouraged. So God says, be strong, go work. And then also he says in verse 4, I am with you. I am with you declares the Lord Almighty. Now, there's no tabernacle. There's no tabern, uh, temple. There's no holy of holies. There are none of the accoutrements of public worship there. There are no liturgical aids, but there's no problem. God doesn't need any of that stuff to be with you. I am with you, he says. It's a powerful, motivating factor to realize that wherever your circumstances, wherever your position, that God is with you. And especially as we can look at this text through New Testament eyes in the Lord Jesus Christ, we know this to be true. We are not alone. The fourth point he makes in verse 5 is about his promises. Now, in the Old Testament, when God speaks about promises, he often uses the word covenant. The covenant is a very serious uh, promise, and he recalls and reminds them that he made a promise with them as a people when they were coming out of Egypt. And the promise he made with them was that he would be their God. In Ezekiel 11, verse 16, it says, Therefore say, this is what the sovereign Lord says, Although I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, this is what the Lord, sovereign Lord says, I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you back the land of Israel again. They will return to it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. They will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And here's how it finishes. They will be my people, and I will be their God. They will be my people, and I will be their God. That's a promise. It was made hundreds of years previously, and God says, I haven't given up on that promise, you know. You are still my people, and I am still your God. I will be with you. I will not leave you. And that whole message that I read, that prophecy from, uh, from uh, the Old Testament, is telling us that the people of God are like God's treasure. You know, the Queen keeps all her treasure in the Tower of London. And you can go there and you can visit it, and it's got big, strong glass uh, 
cupboards to keep everything you can look but you can't touch. And he certainly can't take it away because it's the queen's treasure. And when God made this promise in Exodus, he was telling them that he was their God and we were his treasure and he wasn't going to lose his treasure. Another way of thinking it is that we are God's masterpiece, that he's an artist and he is painting us and shaping us and molding us and creating us. And we are his treasured masterpiece and he's with us. We're not going to lose God. And we are described as a kingdom of priests, not soldiers, not politicians, not a kingdom of car, uh, a power, but a kingdom of worshipers. People who know how to serve and how to worship. We're a holy nation set apart. We are God's showpiece. We are God's model for others to follow. We are God's treasure. He is with us. And that's not because we're good. It's not because we're handsome or pretty. It's not because we always do the right thing. It is because we are his treasure. And also in verse 5, he says, my spirit remains with you. That's the fifth encouragement. Notice as you go through this slump that you have a godly spirit within you. The spirit who brooded over the face of the waters. The same spirit that God took from off Moses and spread it upon the 70 elders that were told in the book of Exodus. The same spirit given to King David of the Old Testament. The same spirit we know at Pentecost as the spirit of God came upon them like a fire. The same spirit he came across great spiritual giants of the past. Luther and Calvin and Wesley and Whitfield and Billy Graham, because the Spirit is upon every generation of God's people, and it's upon us. And then he says in the end of verse 5, because of all this, because I remain with you, because you have my Spirit within you, don't fear. Verse 5, don't fear. He is God. Don't fear. Stir yourself from off that kitchen table. Stand up. Be strong. Get to work. Know that God is with you. Know that the Spirit of God, that resurrection Spirit of God that is given to us through the Lord Jesus Christ is with us individually and as a people of God. And then Haggai goes on at the end of that little passage to describe the time when God will shake the world. And he shakes the world with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the generations of the people of God have gone through from this time of Haggai. They did build the temple. They did live as people of faith, up and down. They went through many a cycle of 
of revival and then decay as the people of God. But in due course, Jesus comes and the church begins to be built on a vast scale. So big a scale that that great temple that they thought in their mind's eye would be big enough isn't big enough. That their little pile of bricks in comparison with the temple is small, but the temple is minuscule compared to the work of God that God has done in this world and continues to do. For those who are disheartened, for those who are despaired, for those who find themselves in a slump, know that we are a resilient people. You know the reed rubber duck you have in your bath and you push down and it goes down to the bottom and you let go and it bobs back up again. That's God's people. That's the people of God as described in this portion of Scripture. We are resilient because God is with us and His Holy Spirit indwells us. Let's pray. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we, we thank You for the encouragement of Your Word. We thank You for the humanity that we see in the people of God in Haggai's time. And we don't look upon them with some sort of level of superiority. We, we come alongside them and realize we are the same. And therefore, we take this message of encouragement and we apply it to our lives. Forgive us, Heavenly Father, if we have been lost in our slump. We hear the call to be strong, and we know where that strength is to be found. It is to be found in you, our God, who remains with us. It is to be found in the Spirit of God that indwells us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.